you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you this morning to turn with me in them to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah. Since I know that Zechariah has not been probably your go-to quiet time book for the past week or so, let me give you directions. Find the New Testament, find Matthew, turn left and go back two books and you will find where we're going today, Zechariah. While Zechariah may not be particularly familiar to you, my hope is that after this study of the book, however long this study is going to take, that is TBD at this point, that you will not only understand the book of Zechariah better, but you will appreciate it more as well. So maybe you're asking this morning, why in the world are we going to the obscure, or what seems to be the obscure book of Zechariah? Well, let me give you three reasons before I even read this morning's text to you. First of all, it's an Old Testament book. And if you don't count our little summer excursion in the Psalter, which we've been at for the last couple months, the last two books that we've walked together, that we've walked through together as a church, which is our normal practice to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the last two books that we've done that with were New Testament books. Remember? Do you remember the books? You're going to hurt my feelings. Philippians, and then before that, the end of last year, 1 John. Thank you. Oh, you just made my heart sore. Uh, Philippians and 1 John. So we're due to go through an Old Testament book and uh, recognize once again that all of Scripture is profitable for us. That all of Scripture points to the central figure of Scripture, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the New Testament, not just the Psalter. And let me say this, the New Testament writers love the book of Zechariah. They love the book of Zechariah. 54 passages of Zechariah are either explicitly quoted or are echoed in 67 different places in the New Testament, most of them in the book of Revelation. Which leads me to my next reason. Zechariah is not only an Old Testament book, it is imaginative. It's imaginative. What I mean by that is that Zechariah's prophecies, particularly the first half of the book, consist of these striking images that are meant to stoke our imaginations. Because of that, it reads a bit like the book of Revelation with its otherworldly Visions. And so that just makes Zechariah challenging and exciting and interesting and different. With those reasons said, here's the last reason Zechariah is timely. One commentator says this to read and study Zechariah is to meet people fired by the same vision and living with many of the same tensions and challenges as us. What's that same vision that they're fired by? Well, big picture, it's Yahweh's reign in fullness. 
It's what we pray when we say together, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the vision that unites us with the hearers of the prophecy of Zechariah. And what are the tensions and the challenges? Well, the tensions and the challenges that we feel that they felt is it's frustratingly not here yet. We long for it. We want to see it. But in fact, it doesn't even look like it's coming anytime soon at times. And so the Lord speaks through His prophet to His people back then and to us today, encouraging and challenging us to not forget His promises. Now to the contrary, He is sending a man named Zechariah whose name means he has remembered. He has remembered. And so let's listen. Today we dip our toes just a little bit into the book. We don't get into the real juicy stuff until next week, but this is good. It's a good place to start. God's word is always good. And this lays the context for the weeks to come. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 today. If you would, stand for the reading of God's word and listen as I read. Zechariah chapter 1, follow along with me. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds, but they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Go ahead and be seated. It's fall, October, November-ish, 520 B.C. Fall, 520 B.C. We know this because Zechariah tells us in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. The book of Zechariah is filled with these time markers. We know exactly what was happening. What was happening is that Zechariah, who was a priest from a prominent priestly family, has returned with thousands of his countrymen. He has returned from exile to the land of promise, the land that Yahweh gave his people following the exodus. We'll get to why they were in exile in just a bit. But as he writes this prophecy, things have changed quite a bit. Most importantly, the Babylonians have been overtaken by the Persians. And so King Cyrus, the Persian king at the time, determined that it was good politics to allow the people of God, the Jews, to return to their homeland to rebuild. 
and to begin to practice their religion once again. And so as we come to the book of Zechariah, the people are back, at least about 50,000 of them or so, and they've been back for about 16 years, but the rebuilding that they had come back and anticipated has stalled, particularly the rebuilding of the temple. We know a little bit about this. We studied the book of Nehemiah some 10 years ago. Opposition from outsiders conflict within their own community, heavy taxation from the Persians themselves, other financial constraints, all those things has left the people of God discouraged. The glory that they once knew in their land, the glory that they once saw in the temple that they were trying to rebuild is long gone. They see the ruins of what once was and they feel the impossibility of making it all right again. They are home, yes, but life is hard. And so they were asking this question. Why be faithful if we can't see the fruits of faithfulness. We've been here 16 years. Maybe we should just live our lives. Can you relate? Can we relate as a people? Long gone are the days where Christianity is acceptable. Right? What well, we seem to be losing the culture wars. Any credibility that we once had in society has been replaced by downright hostility at times, hasn't it? And it's not just our nation, it's, it's our world. I just came back from walking the streets, the historic streets of, of England and Scotland, places where the giants of our faith walked. Some of my heroes of the faith walked and preached and proclaimed the gospel. And now their majestic churches are literally Thai restaurants, coffee bars, and tourist attractions. It's into this discouragement that Yahweh sends two prophets. First, he sends Haggai. Then, he sends Zechariah. Haggai comes first and encourages God's people by giving them a, a vision for the temple, a vision which successfully jumpstarts that process. You can read the book of Haggai pretty quickly. And then Zechariah comes just weeks Later, and he goes even further. He gives God's people a vision, theological lenses that help them see that God is going to keep his promises. God is keeping his promises. That renewal and restoration is to come. Ultimately, God's kingdom will be established among his people. That's what Zechariah is going to speak to us in the next weeks and months to come. There's much more to come than today, but what's Zechariah's word of encouragement today? Well, I'd like to sum up these opening verses that we just read real quickly with two admonitions that I think are clear in this passage. The first one is this. Learn from the past. Learn from the past. Once upon a time, I was a high school history teacher. 
And everybody knows that this is the high school history teacher shtick on the first day of class. This is what the history teacher says to make sure that you know that his or her class and his or her subject matters and you ought to listen, right? Learn from the past. Winston Churchill's paraphrase made it famous, but it was actually a a 20th century writer that first penned these words when he wrote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Right? That's essentially what Yahweh is telling Zechariah to tell God's people right out of the gate. He reminds them of the story of the previous generation. He reminds them very briefly of their fathers. You remember the history. Many of you do. Some of you don't. The Hebrews, this insignificant people in the ancient world, nothing to speak of in and of themselves, they had entered into relationship with Yahweh, not some local deity like a Canaanite god like Baal, but Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. They had entered into covenant relationship with him at his initiation. And with miracles and with might, he had rescued them from slavery out from under the hand of the Egyptians. And he had set apart for them a land and he gave them that land in mighty ways. They conquered their enemies and they took the land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Just walk in my ways. And have no other gods before me. And they agreed. But we know the story. It didn't take long for everything to become unraveled. They forgot Yahweh. Somehow the mighty wonders that he had performed just poof, went out of their memory. And they began going through the motions in worshiping Him. They began reaching out to other lifeless idols that would sit on a shelf and do nothing. They made alliances with other nations around them. They intermarried with these people. They became like them and so God warned them and God warned them again. He sent prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah to plead with them. But they didn't listen. And so what does Zechariah say? He says that Yahweh became angry with them. Not angry like we become angry. God doesn't have internal emotional angst or change. As the theologians like to say, God has no passions. No, that's the Bible's way of of stooping to help us understand this God that is ultimately incomprehensible. Anger is born from displeasure and Yahweh is not pleased because His righteousness and His justice demand the consequences of disobedience. He cannot wink at sin. He cannot just sweep it under the carpet. And so that, in a nutshell, is the reason for the exile. The covenant curses have come to bear upon God's people. So the ruins that Israel sees all around them are a reminder of God's justice, 
or a reminder of God's wrath or a reminder of how their fathers wandered from the way. And the Lord says, learn from the past. Do not forget what happened to your fathers. Recognize and remember my justice. Listen and give heed to my words. Be warned by those who have gone before you. And notice he says this in such a way. Five times in these six verses, he uses the designation Lord of hosts. Yahweh of hosts. This isn't a a designation that's unique to Zechariah, but its frequency ought to give us pause here. In fact, he'll use it 48 more times in this book. Yahweh is the God of angel armies. Yahweh is the commander-in-chief of Israel's army. Yahweh is the commander-in-chief of Babylon's army, of Assyria's army, of all the armies of the earth. In other words, make no mistake, Jeremiah is saying. Make no mistake, the Lord is saying. I am the all-powerful one behind all of this. And so be warned. Don't forget the past. Don't forget the consequences of sin. Don't forget the justice of the one who rules and reigns over all, but learn from it. And of course, here we sit, Edmonds, Washington, 2022. Our looking back, our learning is completely different, right? Well, I suspect that some of us, when we hear those words, we've learned from the past. We've learned not to look at the mistakes of those who've gone before us. Our parents who may have walked in unbelief or in addiction or in sin. But I guess as I meditated upon these verses, as I thought about these verses, the question that came to my mind, the question that we ought to be asking is, what has your sin gotten you? Right? As you learn from the past, it's a good question to ask. The Lord certainly doesn't want us to wallow in our sin. I'm not saying wallow in your sin, but the Lord certainly wants us to recognize its end. As these sons and daughters looked at their father's and mother's generation and they saw the end of their sin, they saw the end of their unbelief. As you think back and remember your past, as you remember your failures, do you remember the unfulfillment? Do you remember the guilt? Do you remember the heartache? Do you remember the consequences of your sin? The Lord says, remember and learn from the past. That's the first simple admonition, but there's another. That was just the catalyst for what is the primary command of these verses, and it's our sermon title for today. Return to me. Return to me, the Lord says. See, at the heart of what Zechariah is calling his people to this morning is repentance. A word that is familiar to many of us, a word that we've heard quite often as we have read through the book of Jeremiah. In that previous generation, as Jeremiah called out the fathers to repent and to return, it's a word that becomes the cry of Jesus and his followers repent and believe. There are volumes and volumes written about repentance. 
We're not going to exhaust it, but just I want to say a couple things that this text makes clear about repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Why? Because sin in our lives, it keeps rearing its ugly head. Our anger keeps resurfacing. Our patience keeps running out. The lust of our eyes keeps tricking us, convincing us to believe a lie. And so this returning, this repenting, that's not just, oh, that's for them back then, or, oh, that's for people who aren't believers to come to Jesus. No, this is for us. This is for me. This is for this morning. And it includes two kinds of turning. David's cry in Psalm 51, a psalm that we looked at years ago, is is a clinic, as the kids say these days, for repentance, right? First, we recognize our sin. David in that psalm uses several different words. Transgression, describing his open rebellion. Iniquity, describing his twisted character and his bent nature. Sin, describing the falling short of God's standard and God's glory. And so you and I are called to see the error of our ways in our lives, to constantly examine our lives, and then turn from it. Do a 180. We strive to go and sin no more. That's what Zechariah describes in verse 4. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But notice where this turning is centered in. Or rather, who this turning is is centered in. You've got to get this. Because repentance and turning from sin is not primarily about an ethic. It's not primarily about a behavioral change. It's not about getting your stuff together. It's not about cleaning yourself up and making yourself presentable. This is relational, right? David writes in Psalm 51.4, against you, You only, he says to the Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so the Lord says, I don't just want your outward adherence. It was never just about that. I want you. I want your heart. Return to me. See, our God is a relational being. He has always been from eternity past in relationship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you and I are a result of the overflow of that loving relationship, invited into that fellowship. That's why you and I are created and loved and called to Him. And so this is the heart of repentance, is relationship with a personal God. This is not just about turning to a holy and righteous judge, but a loving Father who has his arms open wide, ready to receive you no matter what you've done, no matter how you've squandered his gifts. It doesn't matter. Just come back to him. Return to me, and I will return to you, he says. You see, we can't think about our sin as a mere failure of ethic, we have to think about our sin as a grieving of the heart of God. This is about turning from and forsaking those things that threaten our relationship with Jesus. 
Jesus, the one who is the proof that God delights to show mercy. Jesus, the one who is the hope for habitual sinners like you and me. And so in saying, return to me, the prophet is saying to us here today, run to Jesus. Return to me by running to Jesus. This is the heart of the Christian life. You know, I think much of the time, maybe I'll just speak for myself, I think I'm okay. My life is not marked at times by humble repentance, but rather pride. Right? I'm good at identifying the sin in others, but I'm poor. I've become so familiar, maybe callous, maybe indifferent to my own sin that I can't even see it at times. We need grace. I need grace even to pursue grace. And so in the same way that our faith is a gift, so is repentance a gift. You're here this morning. You're listening online. The rhythms of worship, they help keep these things before us. It's one of the reasons why it's so good to commit ourselves to this rhythm. So good for us to pray the words of David in another psalm, my favorite psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Simple concepts. Learn from the past. Return to me. But it's at the heart of what it means to follow God. What it means to walk with Jesus. May God give us His grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these words from the prophet Zechariah. We thank You for this call to Your ancient people long ago and this call to us here today. Father, may we live lives of continual and constant repentance. Forgive us for our forgetfulness. Forgive us for our wandering. Holy Spirit, renew our hearts, we pray. And if there are here those who have never made that initial first step of repenting and believing, turning from their sin and resting in your all-sufficiency, oh Father, may today be the day of salvation for them. Father, glorify Yourself in and through Your Word, I pray this day in Jesus' name. Amen.